Welcome back to Neurotech Pub. This episode is part two of a series about optical methods for interfacing with the brain. In our last episode, we focused on optical methods for recording neural activity. In this episode, we're going to talk about optical methods for stimulating activity. Our guests today are Ian Oldenburg, an assistant professor at Rutgers University, Adam Packer, a professor at Oxford University, Matt Kaufman, an assistant professor at the University of Chicago. In this episode, we nerd out a lot about the science of optical control of neural interfaces. We talk about things ranging from design of opsins to nonlinear optics to control theory. But I think, again, like the last episode, one of the most interesting things we talk about is how do you collaborate with people who have different skills. And especially when you're early on in your career and you can't do everything, how do you pair up with people to accomplish more together than you could have done separately? Another thing that amazed me about this podcast is that Ian and I were roommates freshman year at Carnegie Mellon, and neither of us said anything during this podcast that needed to be cut out during editing. Be sure to visit paradromics.com slash neurotechpub for detailed show notes and references from our discussion. And if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, give us a follow so you never miss the latest episode. I hope you enjoy the episode. Cheers. Well, maybe to kick things off, can, can everyone go around and introduce yourself and, and uh, say where you're from, kind of what you're doing, and then just as a little bit of an icebreaker, tell us about one scientific paper that you wish that you'd written. Can we do two? I've got two. Absolutely. Adam, you want to start? My name is Adam Packer. I'm at the University of Oxford. Uh, and uh, we do two things in my lab. One of them is we use all optical interrogation, which I think we're going to talk a lot about today, to understand neural circuits. And another thing we do is we are trying to understand the neural activity in and function of the claustrum, which is this funky brain area that there's not a lot known about. Uh, so that's who I am and what I do, where I am. Uh, and the papers that uh, I wish I had written. Okay, so there's two of them. One is Ian's part of Ian's paper, actually, which is using two-photon optogenetic inhibition with a particular channel. And I remember when this uh, channel came, the GTACRs I'm talking about, when they came out, I wrote to a bunch of people I was working on all optical interrogation with, and I said, guys, this is going to be the one that works. All we need to do is characterize, characterize the wavelength dependence, power dependence, how strong it is, how much of it we need, that neurons can tolerate it, it's clearly going to be, you know, a game changer for two-photon optogenetic inhibition. Then 2017, Ian's paper came out, another great paper from Tommaso Feline's lab, characterizing these in exactly this way. And it was like, it was, you know, you read it and you're just like, this is a great paper. I, you know, I, I wish we had done this. And you know what actually is, I think in many respects, they did it better than we would have done it. So they did a lot more controls. It was really nice to see. Um, the second paper I wish I had written is, is, is much more... Um, sort of technical kind of uh, characterization. So I'm talking about there's these recent papers from the Allen Institute where they characterize the um, how well you can infer spikes from calcium imaging data. And I had this on my list to do for a long time because everybody knows there are different conditions under which it works differentially well. Okay. It's kind of like spike sorting in electrophysiology. We all know it's problematic, but the, the key is to quantify exactly when and how and why. Right. Um, and so I, I kind of wish I had done this one because 
I felt like they, they gave us a lot of really good information. They gave us a lot of answers. But one thing that we still don't know is if you can, you know, take a particular neuron in your recording and know how well you're getting spikes from that particular neuron. And I'm sure they did a deep dive into there. And I can't wait to meet them at a conference once this pandemic is over and ask them what didn't end up in the paper. Because I think there's a lot still left to do. But yeah, those are the two papers I wish I had written. And actually, that's I saw that paper also and was very impressed with it. Could you unpack a little bit more for the audience, just because some people are coming in without a um, without a lot of experience in calcium imaging, and um, sure. And what are the what what would be the uh, ramifications of having this sort of worse than expected coupling between spikes and and calcium signal in terms of understanding yeah. the brain or in terms of building decoders for BCI? Sure. So I think uh, one thing we'd like to do in neuroscience is have a, a, a record of the electrical activity in populations of neurons. So we'd like to know for tens, hundreds, maybe even thousands of neurons, how many spikes were in each one of those neurons. And there's a lot of different ways to get that sort of information. Uh, you know, the gold standard for a long time was electrophysiology. So you could either, you know, basically stick a wire near a cell and record those spikes. And in, in electrophysiology, you have one major advantage, which is you have really good timing. So you know exactly when those spikes occurred. Uh, there's only one, there is a disadvantage. You don't know exactly where the neurons are that those spikes came from. So with electrophysiology, you have a spike sorting problem in terms of figuring out which spikes came from which neurons, because you're literally blind to it. You have a wire in the brain and you're recording a signal. Now, of course, you can stick lots and lots of wires in the brain. We can get arrays, you can get uh, you know, neuropixels, you know, uh, shafts with arrays of recording sites, uh, but you still fundamentally have this problem. So there's, you know, there's obviously been an optical revolution in the last 10 or 20 years where we can use calcium imaging uh, as a basically indirect readout of the electrical activity. So when a spike happens in a neuron, a lot of calcium ions rush into the cell. And because it's floating around the cytoplasm, it's a big signal, it's a big change in concentration. We have now very good indicators of that calcium. And therefore um, we can record with imaging methods, the, the calcium in a neuron as an indirect readout of that electrical activity. So now you can imagine you've got a whole sort of you're literally making a movie of a field of view of many, many neurons, tens, hundreds of neurons, in order to get a record of that spiking activity in that population of neurons. And now you have a different problem. We have actually have two problems. One, you don't really have good timing precision because calcium is a bit slow and the indicators are a bit slow. And the second problem is there's not a direct relationship. Well, there is a direct relationship between the calcium and the spikes, but it depends on the amount of indicator in the cell depends on the biophysics of the cell, and it depends on how well you're sampling that cell. So if you want to image more and more neurons, you've got to go over a larger and larger field of view and you get less good information about each cell. And that's what they quantified pretty well in this Allen Institute paper. They quantified sort of as you zoom out and you get more neurons, what effect does that have on how well you can read out the spikes? And to sort of get, try to wrap up here, because I know it was a bit of an extended answer, but in sort of trying to get at, you know, we want to decode the activity of neural circuits. It doesn't matter if you're doing electrophysiology or calcium imaging, you want to know precisely how many spikes occurred in all those neurons. And so you can imagine as you want to get more and more of the population, you want to understand more and more of the neural circuit, you might have to pay a cost of not understanding each neuron as well. Uh, and that's what they quantified well is that trade-off between more information, but maybe at a bit less quality. That was awesome. Thank you.
So I'm Ian, Ian Oldenburg. I'm a postdoc in the Desnick lab, and I've been working on developing uh, multi-photon optogenetic tools for throughout my, my postdoc. So uh, I helped out and participated in making a new optical strategy to get light to parts of the brain better and, uh, than what existed before. As Adam mentioned, I've worked on developing new opsins. And then lately I've been developing new strategies to be able to write better, to write better, more precise patterns into the brain so that we can really start to tickle the brain in, in more realistic ways. So I was thinking about like what what paper should you know should I call out as as sort of the the most interesting and the, and there are a lot you know there you know certainly I'm definitely a big fan of Adam's papers you know uh, where he's you know really pioneering the the field of uh, multiphoton optogenetics you know his did a lot of the you know most solid uh, work to actually show that it's possible show that it's it's doable and use it for for uh, real ways. And then also, I kind of wanted to call out some of, of Matt's papers too, because I think one of the directions that I'm most interested in is how we can start using the observed activity and writing it back in interesting ways. And I think Matt Kaufman here has done some of the best work at really analyzing what patterns of, of activity matter, what's, what's meaningful, and what what might be not and might might be causally uh, evoking changes in, in activity and not. And that's the sort of direction that I certainly want the field to move in is to look at codes very precisely and write them back in interesting ways. Now, I say I'm envious of these papers because I don't think I could have done either of them. I don't have, have you know, I don't have the technical or computational background to get anywhere close to what Matt did. And, you know, in when Adam was writing his multi-photon optogenetics papers, it wasn't even on my radar. So I, I'm very, uh, uh, very envious of both of them. Wow, thanks, Ian. I'm Matt Kaufman. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Chicago, um, and I'm really interested in how you get populations of neurons to work together in order to compute stuff. And by stuff, I mean the the signals, the control signals um, that animals need in order to behave. So. Um, uh, we work with mice. We do a lot of uh, calcium imaging. Hopefully, eventually, we'll expand into these wonderful techniques that that folks like Ian have pioneered um, to be able to write activity back in. We're interested in particular in simple decision making and and even more in motor control um, because these are these are the places where the brain really has to generate a complex signal, and we're we're fundamentally still trying to figure out even some real basics of how that works. So. My approach has been to take these these somewhat abstract uh, mathematical approaches where we're trying to figure out the rules that govern the, the pattern generator in terms of dynamical systems. And the reason I'm in, in mouse now is so that hopefully we can tie this to the biology because with calcium imaging, as, as Adam pointed out, you can see the neurons. You can um, tag them so you can see their cell types. Um, you can tag them so you can see where they project. And um, the, the paper I, I think Ian was probably referring to um, has to do with understanding how information flows between areas. And this is really critical because we know that it's not just neurons acting as a network within an area in order to compute stuff. It's also uh, a bunch of areas working together and information gets passed back and forth. Some of it's feed forward, some of it's feedback. Somehow you end up with uh, sensory, uh, a sensory guided intelligent pattern generation in order to produce exactly the control signals that the muscles need in order to move the animal around. So um, 
with with that in mind, I think the paper I wish I'd written um, was one that was deeply related to to work I did in 2014, but took it a really big step further. Um, and this is work by actually inconveniently yet another Matt, um, Matt Perrick, um, where he was looking at how sensory feedback uh, in, in particular in the context of errors uh, comes into the motor system and pushes on it to alter those dynamics, alter what's going to happen. So it's, it's not an autonomous system so that the animal can make the correct movement to correct that error. Thank you. Today, we're going to be talking about optical control of neural activity. And I wanted as just, if someone could start us off at the really basic level and just summarize for us, what is an action potential and what causes it to occur in the neuron? So the, the fundamental unit of, of communication of a neuron is this discrete event called an action potential. So a neuron gets a bunch of inputs. Some of those inputs excite the neuron. Some of those, neuro some of those inputs inhibit the neuron. And when those inputs end up passing some threshold, and that's, that threshold is going to be a little bit unique to each neuron, how many inputs it needs to integrate, um, that neuron says, okay, that's, that's my jam. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fire an action potential. And that action potential is basically the same every time. It just says, hey, I got triggered. And um, that neuron, because it connects to hundreds or, or thousands or tens of thousands of other neurons, um, it informs all of those neurons that uh, the inputs it likes uh, it were, were what it just saw. So the next thing I was going to ask is simply, um, how do researchers artificially induce this process, the firing of an action potential using light? What's the transduction mechanism to cause a neuron to fire an action potential? What are the modalities that you can use? I mean, there are several different ways to get a, a cell to fire an action potential. You know, the oldest uh, ways of causing cells to spike artificially are to use an electrical current where you, you stick, you know, a couple of wires originally or some fancy shaped stimulating electrode to effectively, so electrically cause a, a cell to fire. You can do fancier methods like uh, create an internal connection to to a cell to cause it to spike, change the electrical situation inside. But your question is really about how to use light to do it. So the the first spiking uh, light-based approaches, well, at least the most popular ones are channel rhodopsin. There were some, you know, purely light, no no opsin mediated strategies that, that were uh, employed a little bit before the the opsin based one. This is like Dirk Trauner and Ahudi Isakoff and the. And and Miesenbach and a few others, um, you know, we're trying purely light-based. And, and so the light-based ones are effectively, you focus a spot of light on a part of a cell and you rupture the membrane just a little bit so that ions from your extracellular media flow in and the cell thinks that it's a synaptic input as Matt just described and causes it to spike. Now, uh, the better approaches, you know, that that have really replaced it are these optogenetic ones. Starting first with channel rhodopsin, which was a, a widely popular excitatory opsin. It's a cation opsin, so that means it it uh, lets positively charged ions into the cell. And when you shine, in the case of channel rhodopsin, blue light onto to those cells, they'll depolarize, much like in the case of a, a synapse, and that will hit the action potential threshold and cause the cell to spike. Since then, many more 
different options of different varieties have been created. They've been sped up and slowed down. They've been redshifted and blue shifted. And the class of option that I'm most interested in are these redshifted options that have also been tested to see how well they work in the two photon regime. So we'll probably talk about what the mechanisms behind two photon action are, but it's an optical strategy that allows you to use a much higher wavelength, a much redder wavelength uh, to mimic a, a lower wavelength. So we can mimic that blue light with an infrared light and get many better spatial response functions, spatial properties because of it. And so this allows you to use, to activate the cells in much the same way. You have the same molecular actuator, uh, the opsin, but you can excite it with different types of light and then different, different strategies. People have also made opsins that are inhibited, made or found, I should say that many of the, the different uh, opsins that that exist are just ones that are found in nature. Uh, there's a separate class of people who mutate these, you know, either new found opsins or existing opsins to, to make better for, for different properties, but uh, many are found. And so some are these anion opsins, which actually suppress a cell, make it harder for that cell to, to fire. And then even there are opsins that change uh, other properties. There, there are these opsins that are connected to G protein coupled receptors. So you can change the internal uh, signaling state of, of cells. And so you can do a lot of different things by, by pairing your particular opsin of interest with its uh, different G protein coupled receptors or different other. So these are all genetically engineered membrane proteins. Yeah, all of the options I'm describing are genetically engineered membrane proteins. I don't know of uh, a simply added option that's been used widely. I'm familiar with the old, maybe someone else knows. Like what do you mean simply added? Not non-genetically, not a protein, not a non-genetically modified or non-genetically non originated protein. I mean, no. there are... There are like the neural dust thing that Jose Carmena does where you can use, I don't remember exactly how it works, but I think you can cause a small uh, particle to, to vibrate very quickly uh, with certain wavelengths. I think they're more in the, in the microwave or the ultrasound wavelength. And so that would be a non-protein based way of, of getting something to happen. Uh, and then there, a few people have worked on using heat-based systems to, to get remote activation. So you can engineer a trip channel, uh, which is a heat sensitive channel, and then it'll be respond selectively to, to, to hot things, you know, then you can heat up a cell with light, but uh, they certainly are not as prevalent as the, the protein-based optogenetics. There is yeah. this new ultrasound trick, right? Where uh, you can focus ultrasound to, uh, transiently disrupt the cell membrane and allow ions to pass through it, um, and that can that can cause excitation. That's that's the only yeah. technique I can think of that isn't fundamentally an engineered protein. And we talked a little bit about um, multi-photon approaches, but in in general, what are the different ways of getting light to these actuators? Experimentally, how 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 can you get light to where it needs to go? How can you? Uh, I think the phrase sometimes that Ian uses is sculpt the light. Yeah, I think I can take that one if you want. I think it yeah. might be my my turn, my turn possibly. So, um, yeah, I think there's there's a number of different ways of doing this. I think 
to start most simply, you can take literally a, a flashlight or an LED or a light bulb or anything that emit, emits light and shine it at the brain. And oftentimes, as the name optogenetics implies, you've put your opsins uh, into a particular genetically defined set of cells. So you might be have excitatory cells or inhibitory cells, certain class of in inhibitory cells, or cells defined based on their projection targets, something like that. Uh, and then you only have opsin in those cells. So you just flood the tissue with light. You literally put photons everywhere by shining the equivalent of a flashlight or a torch uh, at the tissue. And you get photons you know, hitting all the cells and only those cells with the opsins in them will be affected uh, because those opsins will absorb light, change their conformation, allow ions to flow across the cell membrane and cause the excitation or inhibition that, that Ian mentioned that ultimately drives the action potentials that, that Matt Kaufman here uh, so elegantly described. So that's the simplest possible way. Another way that you can um, do a little bit more of a targeted spatial approach is you can use a fiber so you can use it literally a fiber optic to guide the light to a particular part of the brain. So you can, for example, insert a fiber, implant it surgically into the brain so that you can direct your light in a little bit more of a, of a I want to I want to avoid saying focused way, but that's in a way literally what you're doing, a more targeted way, so I say, slightly more sculpted, um, to get the light where you want it. So you may have opsin in, you know, a lot of the tissue, but you only want to activate one part of it at a time. So that's a very common way of doing it. Um, and then another thing you might want to do is you might want to pattern that photostimulation. So you might want to say target A and B, but not C uh, at, at one time. And then in another you know, um, trial, another experimental trial where you're testing something different about the neural circuit you're looking at, you might want to do A and C, but not B. And so there you can use different ways of patterning the light using um, uh, effectively spatial light modulators. So these, as the name implies, modulate the light in space. Okay, and there's different classes of these. Some of them are sort of little micro mirror devices. They're literally what's in your projector that you use uh, you know, to, to project a, a slideshow on the wall or a movie. Um, and they, they, they literally redirect the light with an array of tiny mirrors to different parts. And people have used these very successfully for stimulating different parts of the brain spatially at different times. Um, the other thing you can do is what Ian was alluding to earlier, uh, is you can use two photon excitation. Okay. Now all of the methods I talked about so far use one photon excitation, literally an opsin absorbs one photon and it changes its conformational state and allows ions to flow across the membrane. However, you can also do two photon excitation where as the name implies a given molecule absorbs two photons at the same time having the same effect as having absorbed one photon because those two photons each have half the energy. So that's what Ian meant when he said, you know, you, you sort of mimic some light with another light. So you can mimic blue light with IR light, which has half the energy. Uh, and then you need two photons to get to the same excited state for that molecule. The advantages of two photon excitation are twofold. One, uh, it's less prone to optical scattering. So when you use longer wavelengths of light, you can penetrate that light deeper into the tissue. And this is because of the properties of the scattering of light. And you can think about it if you shine light through, try to shine light through your fingertip. If you have a blue light versus a red light, you see more of the red light getting through the other side because it scatters less through the tissue. So we take advantage of this to, to um, drive light deep into tissue because often we want to 
interrogate these neural circuits as they're working. We want to probe the brain while it's still working in the animal. So we, we have the whole brain there. We have a lot of tissue to get through and we might want to penetrate our light deep into the tissue. And two photon excitation allows us to be less prone to scattering. And it also generates something called optical sectioning. So it allows us to direct the light in such a way that we only get excitation at the focal volume and not outside of it. Unlike one photon excitation where you don't have this restriction of needing to absorb two photons simultaneously. So you can get excitation anywhere that the light is. With two photon excitation, you only get that effect at the focus where you've, you've got such a high intensity that you can absorb, that individual molecules can absorb two photons effectively instantaneously. Um, and so, so this is a way that we can now target individual neurons in awake behaving animals. We can use two photon excitation of opsins to target those cells and and I imagine we're going to come to this. So I'll just maybe leave this as a teaser. You can combine these things. So you can take two photon excitation and couple it with a technique to pattern the light using, for example, the spatial light modulator I mentioned earlier to target multiple neurons that you've selected within the tissue. And that's why I think light is a particularly powerful way of controlling neural tissue because now we have this added selectivity of targeting things both in space and in time. That's perfect. That, that leads into my next question for the group, which is where, where are we with respect to optical control of ensembles of neurons? How many neurons can we access simultaneously? Um, what's the temporal and spatial precision? What are some of the trade-offs? Give us a sense of where the technology is right now. If you have an open craniotomy, access to a few square centimeters of, of brain you know, or, or in a case of a mouse, access to the whole brain. Um, how many how many neurons can you activate with with what temporal precision? Well, one thing you know, we've talked a lot about the the writing in, and I can definitely uh, address what the limits are there. But we should also not forget that half of the game is just reading out and you know getting that information out from cells, uh, and you know, there's definitely part of your, your answer here is like, how many cells can you reliably read from in an optical strategy? And what are the, the limits on, on this? And I think with both reading and writing, you know, one of your, your major and hardest things is actually not the, the breadth of like how wide of a sample can you get, though there are limitations there, but it's how deep can you go? And so infrared light, as Adam just said, can only, it can get, can travel much, much farther than blue light can. But because we we really want to keep that spot of light that's going into the brain very small so that you have good resolution, it's still pretty limited. And I think most people, you know, most people go less than a millimeter in into the brain with, with two photon light. If you want to take, you know, there are ways around this to get let, let, let's say that our, our target depth is 750 microns. How many neurons, what kind of resolution? Yeah. So I think one, one, good, one good thing here to think about is to split it up into a few categories, right? Sure. So you've got these, as with any sort of optical technology, people always ask, we wanna go wider, faster, deeper, and stronger. 
And then eventually when they get those things, they're like, wait a second, I also want to go in three dimensions. I want to go volumetrically and I want to do real time, which I'm sure is something we're going to get to in this call. But I think it's to focus on the first four is easier. Sort of how wide can you go with which speed, with how many neurons, right? Or another way would be, what are some existence proofs that we have that kind of explore the different domains? Like where do we have an existence proof that we can point to and say, that was a great example of wide, or that was a great example of deep, or that was a lot of neurons. So maybe I'll start with, if Ian doesn't mind, I'll start with sort of about how many neurons we can get with what spatial precision. And then the Dizeroth lab group who has blown out how wide you can go. So they, they leapfrogged us with some, with some beautiful technology. It was published a couple of years ago. And then Ian should jump in here with temporal precision because I think his paper is the one that really slam dunks that. And these are all in sort of different quadrants. You can't do all of these things simultaneously. You kind of have to choose yours. So maybe if I sort of work through the history a little bit and then, and then hand it over to Ian, you'll get a sense of what the numbers are. Okay. So what we started with was we wanted to be able to activate about 10 or 20 neurons simultaneously that we chose. So we used two photon, ox, uh, two photon excitation to, to, to target an individual neuron. We combined that with the spatial light modulator to hit more than one neuron at a time. And we did that in our original paper now from uh, end of 2014, about 10 or 20 neurons. And it became immediately apparent, it's not gonna be enough. It was like, you know, 10 or 20 neurons is not how even a mouse brain works. It's gonna take more neurons than that. And to some extent, it's almost as easy as buying a bigger laser because effectively what limits how many neurons you can hit is, how much laser power you have to divide across those neurons. If, it, to some extent, if you buy a bigger laser, you can just split across more neurons. Assuming you don't run out of neurons in the space that you can hit, which I'll talk about in a moment, um, you know, it, it, basically if you don't run out of targets, right? Now, the real problem is, of course, we can buy bigger lasers, right? I mean, there exist lasers for micro machining. We're actually using some in the lab now that are uh, also used to cut iPhone glass, right? I mean, that's how powerful they are. So this is way more powerful than we need for biology. We're just splitting it up amongst lots and lots of targets. So you run into actually a limit of like photo damaging the brain. So our numbers these days with these big lasers, we've tested the photo damage limits. We know how much we can put in. Basically, we figured that out, by the way, by, by turning it beyond what's okay and figuring out where the damage limit is and then dialing it back a bit. Okay, so we know where that limit is. We can hit, you know, 100 neurons or so uh, and we can do that every... So you've developed a very advanced lesioning technology is what you're saying. Oh yeah. If you want, we can turn it up to 11 and, and do ablation. And people have done that actually. That's in two photon excitation. People have done this in a very... Simon Prone, for example, recently had a beautiful paper, uh, you know, ablating a particular ensemble of neurons that code for something in somatosensory cortex and showing the effect that had. So this is actually also a useful way of doing this. If you want to know how something, you know, works, take a part of it away and see what happens, right? There's always, you know, issues with interpreting those experiments, but they did a great job with all the controls in that paper. Um, but, but getting back to, you know, how many, your question, right? How many neurons can you hit with what precision over what area at what depth? So we can hit about hundred at once and we can do that every, you know, 10 or hundred milliseconds or so, and then hop to a new and different hundred neurons. So if you just do a very back the envelope calculation, if it's hundred neurons, every 10 milliseconds, you can say, well, we can do that a hundred times or, a, you know, very roughly right in a second. We can now do 10,000 neurons in a second. But to be honest with you, we actually, that's beyond the limits of what we can read. So getting back to what Ian mentioned earlier, 
we actually don't have a 10,000 targets to hit in a second that we need to that we need to photoactivate. When you start activating that much of the tissue, you're getting back to almost a one photon experiment where you're just bathing the tissue in light and hitting it all at once. You might as well just be sticking a wire in and turning the electrical current on and, and lighting up the whole area. Now, some people would say, okay, well, it's the temporal precision that matters. If you can hit these hundred nerds in this particular sequence, maybe that's how the brain works. I think now, instead of going to wider, I want to pass it back to Ian because he can tell us more about temporal precision in terms of when exactly can you get the spike? What sort of precision do you have with that? Because that's where his technology, I think, really shines. Yeah, so to get temporal precision, it, I mean, a big piece is about how you construct your entire multi-photon optogenetic system. So you're, there are a lot of things that will go into like, how do you activate a cell? And if your goal is just to get a cell to be activated fastest, you first need a very fast opsin, one that's gonna respond to light very quickly. And then you want one of these strategies that gets all of your light to the cell at the same time. When we say very fast, can you talk a little bit, what are the time constants of the different opsins, just to give us a sense? Uh, you want it. You want it to turn on in a in a millisecond or or less. You want the jitter from a, from an action from an evoked action potential to be a millisecond or less. And and this is because you think action potential precision in the brain that matters is at the one millisecond level, right? Which could be true. Let's punt on that though, because I I want to get to Matt next, and so I, I want to kind of get a a quick answer from Ian. Yeah. So yeah, I think a millisecond is about the resolution that I care about. And therefore we engineer opsins to be fast enough to hit that level. So, right. So from basic cell properties, you know, just injecting current into a cell, you can inject L to, and trying to get to the spike, you can inject a little bit of current over a long period of time, 10, 20, 50, 100 milliseconds. And it doesn't take much current to activate that cell or, but you, but the consequences you don't know exactly when that cell is going to fire. It's going to depend on, you know, all the other inputs, the particular, you know, as, as Matt mentioned, you know, the particular preference of that cell of what point it needs to, to go to fire. In contrast, you could alternatively pack all of your, your depolarization, all of your current into a single pulse that's very brief, say a couple milliseconds long. Then you know that the action potential is going to be a lot closer in time, it's a lot better known spot, but now you need much, much more current. So the analogy in opsin space is that if you have a very fast and very strong opsin, you can activate cells much more quickly. Now, this is a harder ask. So I think the, the most powerful opsin that I've seen is this one that the, the Dyseroth lab just published that uh, takes you know, you, you look at it cross-eyed and it'll spike the cell. It's super potent, but it's also very slow. So you can use, you know, very, very little light to cause the, these cells to, to, to spike, but you have much worse control over when they're going to fire. And you're going to, maybe you can combat that by having a short pulse of light, but you'll still have this inability to make them fire very fast. So if you care about, out, you know, so stringing many pulses back to back to back to back. So if you care about writing fast and precise patterns of, of action potentials, you really want both a, a fast and strong opsin. Now, this is still only half the game, right? Getting 
getting an ops in that response to your light correctly is only part of it. You also need to get all of your light to the cell as quickly as possible. So I like to describe the, the, uh, the multi-photon optogenetic strategies into, into two worlds. There's the one where you take the, the smallest possible dot of light and you spiral it around on, on a cell. This has the best possible optical resolution. So you have the least amount of crosstalk and mistakes, which we should talk in depth about. Uh, but it is at the con, uh, it's the, the penalty of this is that it takes a non-zero amount of time to actually spiral that spot around a cell. In contrast, you could take one of these other approaches where you take a, a larger spot of light and you just flash the cell all at once. Now, because light propagates, it moves forward along along its axis, imagine shining a, a flashlight at a piece of paper, there's always gonna be a little bit of light in front of that, that piece of paper and behind. And there's no combination of mirrors that you can use that will actually totally eliminate the light in front of and behind your cell. Uh, so we take a lot of different tricks to try to minimize the ability of that light to activate cells. But anytime you're going for a larger spot, you're going to get more off-target activation. So it comes at penalties. But by having a larger spot, you totally activate all of your cell as quickly as possible. Combine that with, with a very fast option and you can get that cell to spike very quickly. And so then the next question is like, okay, you know, then it's a sort of easy thing then to, you know, like write in whatever pattern you want. You know, if it takes a millisecond to cause a, a cell to fire, you can control your laser at, uh, what is it, megahertz rates? I don't really remember how fast our... our uh, our EOM goes, it's, it's way faster than, than, than you want there. So you can write in any pattern into one cell that you want, but we don't care about one cell or we don't just care about one cell, we care about many cells. So if you want to now change up who, who you're talking to at any, any given moment, you need to change the pattern on your spatial light modulator on your SLM to be able to, to, to change targets. And this is something that has been the focus of a, of a number of different groups. So uh, the Dyseroth lab, they approached this by using two SLMs that they then shuttered quickly between. The Emiliani group has uh, worked on this, this strategy where you take one SLM, but you put different patterns on that SLM that you can switch between. And, there are, and then there's also been just like a really convenient increase in the capabilities of SLMs. So the the SLM that that I like the best natively operates at a, about 300 hertz. So that means you can interleave different patterns of cells quite quickly. You can change up who you're targeting at 300 hertz. So you can cut that to two different patterns at 150 hertz or however many patterns you want and uh, at, at subsequent slowdowns. And so with this approach, roughly how many neurons can you access? What percentage of them at a time? What spatial resolution? Can you give us a couple? I know that I know that you trade offs, but can you give us a couple examples just to build a kind of mental picture? Yeah. So the, the downside of the fast writing approach is that it's more power intensive. So I think the the upper bound of of how many, and you know, so so the Adesnik lab just published a, a new option, which has ra raised the ceiling in our hands. We can, uh, I think they show 200 cells at a time. Maybe it's only 100, something in that that ballpark, in this this fast approach. But as it's only taking a couple 
a couple milliseconds to fire the, this thing, this the cell, the total number of spikes per second, uh, you know, consider the update rate of, of 300 hertz times 200 cells or 100 cells. You're, you're talking in the tens of thousands of spikes per second, divvied up how, however you want. Uh, but then, of course, as Adam says, we have the same problems of you don't really have tens of thousands of cells that are in your volume that, that you care about. And you probably can't read out a single spike in calcium imaging as... So can I, I want to, I want to throw some numbers out here. Cause I really enjoy this. Like, can we put some hard, fast numbers on this? So in our original paper, we could do across half a millimeter by half a millimeter of cortical tissue, roughly. We could do 20 neurons at once with around 10 millisecond precision. So the jitter of when the spike occurs. Okay. And we could do that every something like 20 milliseconds. Now we then bought more powerful lasers. We could do a hundred neurons, but in terms of the precision and the speed, it was pretty much the same. We just bought more neurons with a bigger laser. I think what Ian, correct me here if I get the numbers from your 2017 paper in, you know, inaccurately, but you guys could do like also, you know, 50 neurons or more, right? Dump a lot yeah. of laser power on. You can't do it that often because things might heat up, but you know, you can do it every so often if you know exactly which neurons you want to hit with much better, closer to millisecond level precision. So the technology keeps leapfrogging. And also just to get back to wider, the area over which we can do it, the Dizeroff Lab paper 2019, they upped it to a millimeter by a millimeter field of view with millisecond precision in terms of writing the activity and also the ability to switch between different patterns with millisecond precision. So it's ratcheting up with time. We went from 10 neurons to 100 neurons. 10 milliseconds down to a millisecond. You know, all of us are kind of pushing hard on the laser manufacturers, the opsins and the SLMs to keep, you know, increasing this in order of magnitude until we figure out what level of precision we need to understand how the brain works. <laughs> I'd like to revisit some physical limits in a little bit, but first I want to switch over to a different thread and some a place where I'd like to bring Matt in, which is in, you know, most... Uh, you know, electrophysiology methods, whether you're stimulating or recording, you're often looking at a sparse subset of cells um, compared to the entire population. Now, in recording, um, if I think especially um, about work that's been done with the Utah Array and, and, and some of your work uh, in particular, there's, um, we're, we're taking advantage of the fact that there's the activity and the kind of coding space is much lower dimensional than the number of neurons in the network. And therefore, even a small number of neurons, if you have access to record from them, uh, you can make an inference about the state of the system. But when it comes to controlling the system, I think it's not obvious that access to only a small number of nodes will allow you to drive the system. And I, I'm wondering if you could comment on, is there a Good. Is there good theory there? Are there good proof points? How do we know how many neurons we need access to to actually drive the system into the modes that we're looking for? This is a great question. So first of all, it depends on, on where in the pipeline you are, right? So if you're way over on the sensory side versus way over on the motor side versus somewhere in the middle, um, you're going to see very different things. So on the sensory side, your brain is, is constructed such that you can detect incredibly faint 
uh, stimuli. So um, we've known for decades and decades and decades that if you actually take the sensory periphery, right, if you look at the retina, um, if you wait in a dark room for an hour or two um, and you fully dark adapt, um, your retina can detect somewhere between three and five photons hitting it at about the same time, right? You're phenomenally sensitive. These aren't engineered proteins, right? These are your normal photoreceptors. Um, similarly with, um, you know, you take a mouse, which, which lives largely by its whiskers and its nose, right? Um, so you take a mouse and uh, you do tiny, tiny stimulations of, of the whiskers. Um, it's, it's sensitive to activation of just a handful of neurons. Now, if you go in and you do the optogenetic manipulation and you activate a handful of cells in the primary sensory cortex for any of these different sensory modalities, right? Whether it's audition or, or vision or somatic sensation, um, you can activate just a handful of neurons and the animal can tell you that, yeah, they felt that. Um, and you can do this with the, these sorts of targeted stimulations. You can do this using very low power such that you can check that you're activating only a handful of neurons. Um, people have done this a variety of ways. If you activate just a handful of neurons in the sensory areas, the animal can detect it. And there's some evidence now actually that this may be true anywhere in the brain, that if you ask the animal, hey, did you feel that? Um, they can say yes, right? Accurately, that they can, they can detect that only even a, a small number of neurons were activated. But that's only half the question, right? Can you, can you get an animal to intentionally, if you like, amplify these, these very small inputs? The answer to that seems to be yes. But when you're trying to make the system dance, right? When you want to, when you want to make the system do exactly what you want it to do, that's a very different question because now you're trying to drag it away from what it wants to do um, and make it do what you want it to do. So um, that we won't really know until these guys, you know, manage to get their technology to a point where folks like me can, can stick it in our lab and, and test our hypotheses. But th this, um, this notion of low dimensional dynamics gives me some hope. Um, so um, to unpack what that is a little bit, uh, this idea is basically that uh, the activity of neurons isn't independent, right? Unsurprisingly, they're all connected in a network. They better be cooperating to do what they do. So uh, what that means is that you'll observe when you record from, uh, from the brain in, in a bunch of different contexts, you'll observe only a limited number of the possible patterns of activity you get. So um, to, to oversimplify it, um, some neurons are gonna be correlated, some neurons are gonna be anti-correlated. Um, some of those individual pairs may be very strongly correlated. Um, many of them are gonna be weak, but once you look over a large number of neurons, you can predict very well what the activity of neuron number 1000 is if you understand its relationship to neurons one through 999. So um, that's, that's this notion of low dimensional dynamics that um, you can't get any possible pattern. The neurons are in some sense locked into a, a subset, subspace, um, if, uh, if we use the mathematical term of the, the possible different patterns. And more than that, um, there's also not just a low dimensional system, uh, there's also a dynamical system. So if you have one set of firing rates, you can predict very well, at least in motor cortex, what the firing rates are going to be 100 milliseconds later, because it turns out that these firing rates evolve sensibly over time. 
right? That's just to say there are rules that govern how the neural state, as we usually put it, um, what the rules are that it has to obey over time. So if you understand both what the low dimensional system is doing and you understand the dynamics so that you can work with the system to push the state around in a way that it likes to push the state around, then um, I think we have a much better hope of writing in patterns that are cooperating with the brain instead of fighting it and hopefully uh, let us let us write in sensible patterns instead of instead of just writing in the equivalent of white noise. I'm thinking an analogy. I, I'm, I'm a limited person, so when I have to think, sometimes I think about like a football stadium. If you've ever been to a, an event where people do the wave, you would only need to watch a small number of people to know if the stadium was doing the wave. But I don't know if you've ever been to an event where a couple of like drunk people stand up and try to get the wave started, and <laughs> and it dies out on on their you know, at, with their next door neighbor, that's it. Like, that's an example of a case where you, a very sparse subset lets you know it's happening, understand the low dimensional dynamics, but you actually need a fair, a critical mass of, of people standing up and waving their arms to get the wave going. Or, or you need the announcer, right? You might need an announcer to get on the, 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 the announcement system and say, okay, we're going to do the wave now. And suddenly it doesn't take that many people to kick it off, right? What you need is the control over that. Do we have a sense, like, are there first principles, like it, just looking, like we know a little bit about, about connectivity. Like if we, if we know a little bit about connectivity in the network, we know about like what correlations are like during, can we start to bound? Is there a way that in the same way that I pushed Ian and Adam kind of uncomfortably to throw, put down hard numbers, is there a way we can start to get a sense of, what you definitely, I think it probably we'd all agree, you don't need to control 99.9% .9 of neurons. And I think we also probably agree that less than 1% is probably not enough to drive the network since they're all kind of weakly coupled. Is there, is there like, or maybe I'm wrong, maybe, maybe actually that's not right. Is there some way we could start to kind of close that uncertainty window? Yeah. Um, so first of all, I won't, I won't accept that 1% isn't enough. So part of the reason for this is um, when you do electrophysiology, right? You stick electrodes in the brain and you hear neurons chattering away and you go, hey man, the brain is, brain's a really active place, right? When, when I have the animal do something that's related to what this area does, then I sure hear a lot of neurons. Um, but there had been this really suspicious thing for decades, which is that if you calculate how many neurons you should be able to hear from the end of an electrode, it was much larger than the number of neurons you actually ended up recording when you did that spike sorting, right? When you figured out um, which spike came from which neuron, you don't, which neuron is just, you know, you assign them a letter or whatever. Um, so we also knew just from energy calculations that if, the, if all of the neurons were as active as the neurons we recorded electrophysiologically, um, the brain would boil. Um, right? Like it's, there was, there's no possible way that the energy expenditure could have been consistent with that number of spikes. So we knew that most neurons had to be quiet. And the first thing that most people see when they start doing calcium imaging after they get over the initial shock of, oh man, I can actually see this thing I've been visualizing the whole time, right? Um, the, the sort of first thing you notice is, wow, a lot of these neurons aren't doing much. How sparse is activity in cortex? That's a much harder question to answer than will 1% be enough? <laughs> I'll give you a number for somatosensory cortex if you want. It's about it's about twenty percent. 
of the neurons are active to uh, you know a given stimulus that you put in. And it, it seems to be also that many neurons, we can't exactly find the correct stimulus. Now we can argue about, you know, how would you go about doing this? Do you need to try every possible stimulus? But the bottom line is not that many neurons fire, not that many spikes in somatosensory cortex. They also maybe only fire one or two spikes to the stimulus they do prefer. So that is quite interesting. Gets at Matt Kaufman's point here. You know, there's just not, the, the activity is quite sparse. I mean, somatosensory cortex is particularly sparse, but still, it's sparse. And that's when you're driving a sensory area. So the, the best estimates I've seen of overall brain activity is that the average neuron is somewhere between 0.1 and 0.01 hertz. In other words, a neuron is firing on average, a given neuron, not any neuron, uh, is firing on average somewhere between one every 10 and one every 100 seconds, right? Most neurons are very quiet most of the time, at least in cortex. And pyramidal cells. We should we should okay. specify that we're talking about pyramidal cells. Yes, thank you. Now yeah. that we're talking about how sparse these spikes are, I think would be a reasonable time to let Ian in with his um, importance of spike timing question and, yeah. and precision of spike timing. Sure. I mean, is spike is spike timing important? Does anyone know the answer to this? That's the question, right? Uh, I think in the retina, in the retina, it's very very clearly important. In early sensory areas, it's very clearly important. It's very clearly encoded, yes. I mean, it, and there's definitely, you know, in auditory cortex, you can see that uh, neurons phase lock to, to, to the phase of, of the sound that they're hearing. We can see very precisely timed spikes going, going on in many cases. There's this whole uh, concept and theory of, of spike timing dependent plasticity being important for how the brain changes what it does throughout throughout the life and, and role of, of the animal. But it's also a very hard thing to test. So we can see that there are there are hallmarks of timing at the sort of millisecond scale or, or even even better being real and having real physiological changes. But to demonstrate that this is something that's used by the animal is actually a lot harder to, to see. And I think the, the major problem with this is a, it's, it's a hard dimension to probe. How do you get really precise added activity on, on a fine scale, you know, yeah, sure. You could stick a couple cattle prods in the brain and, and synchronize them and say, okay, this area is going to be synchronized with that. But if you really want to get in this very nuanced region, okay, you know, this circuit wants cells A and B to be synchronized and critically C to be asynchronous or to be delayed by 10 milliseconds or a hundred milliseconds or, or, or a second. This isn't, isn't a type of experiment that can be done. Uh, to a first approximation. So I don't think there's a lot that's known about how important is it. We just keep seeing these signs that like neurons are controlling their timing. And so we think that that must be important. I wanna add one thing to that, which is that there are a few different uh, theoretical outlooks in terms of what matters in terms of coordination between neurons. Um, so there are some folks who think that the, the key thing is assemblies that it matters that this set of neurons fires at the same time or with small delays, and then this other set of neurons fires next, um, that, that it's, it's really about the, the set of neurons firing. Um, and, and the usual assumption there is that those, those neurons are wired more strongly together. Um, there's, there's an alternative hypothesis, um, which is the idea of sequences. 
that um, that it's really this neuron and then this neuron and then this neuron. Um, and it's sequences that preserve information. Maybe there are sort of forks in, in what the sequence can be that are um, implementing the processing that an area has to do. Um, and then there's this notion of dynamics um, where you say, okay, each, each neuron is sort of related to an underlying state, um, but exactly which neuron fires, it really doesn't matter as long as the state comes out correct. Um, and it's, it's the trajectory of the state over time that is, that is controlling things because, you know, if, if two neurons are projecting downstream, the, the downstream target doesn't really care whether neuron one fires and neuron two fires or both fire a little, right? It doesn't matter. Um, so, um, those three different ways of looking at the world, I think, um, lead to different experiments that you would do with these, these many neuron control systems. Although it seems like this is essentially most people, I think would agree that all three of those things are true. I mean, they're definitely not mutually incompatible. Yeah, they, they may be, they may be compatible. Although the mathematics of that haven't been worked out. Um, it may be that, um, different ones of these principles are more important than different brain areas, right? The brain is not one homogeneous mass. Um, different brain areas really are different. Um, so um, figuring out which of these principles applies where people, th there, there are these histories of approaches in different systems. And um, part of that depends on the tasks we have the animals do. Part of that depends on what recording modality is most prevalent in that area. Um, there's, there's really a lot of historical baggage in terms of how people approach different questions and which approach is right for any given area, for any given ethological problem, right? When an animal is navigating versus sensing something faint versus making a decision versus doing some complex motor task. We really just don't know. I think, yeah, also just to riff on, on this sort of the importance of spike timing and, and what do we need? I think it's, it's, it's always just a question of precision. We know that the timing of spikes matters at some level, right? If you know an auditory stimulus comes in and I don't respond for 10 seconds because my neurons don't respond over that time scale in time, that's going to be a problem. So we know there's a limit, like you say, sort of, can we bound in the extremes? It's just a question of exactly that, the, what level of precision is it that matters? And I think this is why we need to have these... Uh, tools that allow us to take control at increasing levels of precision until we find one where we can take control of the system, inject spikes beyond the level of precision that is needed, and then jumble them up and say, oh, it no longer matters. At sub-millisecond precision, we don't see a difference if we jumble the spikes at that temporal scale. And that's, that's what we need. And I think this actually comes back to something I wanted to riff on much earlier, which is how much control do we need? How can we fight the system? Because it's something that, that Matt uh, Kaufman here said earlier, which is, you know, we don't want to be fighting what the brain is trying to do. The natural low dimensional evolution of those dynamics, the trajectory of neural activity across thousands and thousands of neurons is in some sense, uh, I don't know if hardwired is the right word because I don't mean hardwired from birth. I just mean that the structure of the circuit, the connectivity of the structure only allows certain amounts of activity to evolve. For example, again, you can define the extremes that you know are not possible. It's never true that all of the neurons are not spiking at the same time. It's never true that all of the neurons are spiking at the same time. So there are nodes of this kind of the possible patterns that are possible and those that aren't. And the question is, can we take control of the correct amount of it 
in the correct way that respects the built-in dynamics, right? The structure of those dynamics that are in some way instantiated in the connectivity in the circuit and the, and the, the way the dynamics evolve. So I can tell you from our experiments, when we whack the brain with what we think is a pretty hard stimulus, right? We hit a hundred neurons at once in 10 milliseconds in a small area in a chunk of the brain that we think does kind of one thing, one you know, part of somatosensory cortex that responds to inputs on given whisker. The brain shuts that down immediately. It's like in no time at all. It's like, no, no, we're not doing that. You didn't, you didn't tickle me in the way I like to be tickled. We're not doing that. We're doing the thing we said we were doing a second ago. I don't care what you say. And that means we don't know the dynamics that matter. We have not hit on the correct. We have not found the announcer in the football stadium that tells the neurons it's time to do the wave, right? We can take control momentarily because we're overdriving these neurons essentially to do something they're not wanting to do at that moment. We now have the power to do that, but we haven't yet found the, the key that unlocks the natural dynamics of making things unfold in a certain direction of neural patterns happening that were not gonna happen before we turned our lasers on. How do we search that space, given that the number of possible inputs is very, very large? And it, it, I mean, Matt, do you have any insight into what, what sort of optimization techniques you have to use in order to find the right, the right way to tickle? Yeah, I think this is something where hypothesis-driven science is, is the way, right? So if you have these different hypotheses that different theories have advanced, different uh, analyses of ongoing activity have advanced in terms of sequences and dynamics and assemblies and all, all these these different models um i think i think what you do is you record and you see what the brain likes to do um you first of all try to just straight up recapitulate that um and it may be to to take this football stadium wave analogy a little bit further right it may be that the right thing to do is to take one little pocket of people right that you can control and, and make them all all do the wave at once or it could be that Really, the right thing to do is to take one section of the stadium, even though you can only get them sparsely, right? Have have a group of people in a sparse checkerboard all do the wave. The, the right thing to do might be um, you get you know half of half of the people you can control to do the wave at this second, and then a second later you have the one one chunk over so that people know which direction it's going, right? Like these these are different hypotheses about how you might exert control on the system. And that's and, the beauty of neuroscience, right? Like we we have all these different researchers trying all these different things. We've got people like me and Ian who are trying to do sparse but highly specific control. Then you've got the people using one photon technology or or you know electrical stimulation in this particular way to do the more broad but but less specific, less exact, right? And I think this is like why it's so much fun to do neuroscience, right? Because we don't know what the correct answer is. We got to try all the things until we have some inkling of what is the way forward. And we need the theoreticians, right? You know, we give talks, I don't know, Ian, you, sorry to jump in here, but like, you know, Ian has probably had this experience where like, if you give a talk to a theoretician, you say, hey, here's a field of view of 500 neurons and they're doing this thing. And you say, tell me which to tickle. I can tickle any one you want. I can do a hundred at a time every 10 milliseconds. You say, which ones do I need to turn on to make something happen in those journal, neural dynamics a second from now? Every theoretician in neuroscience right now will give you a different answer about which ones to tickle based on their own model. And I'll tell you what, we got to try them all until we figure out who's right. But I'd also add, you know, from our doing the wave in a stadium analogy that I don't think that any of the strategies that we've just suggested will actually cause the wave to happen, right? Because if you 
get the whole stadium to stand stand up at once or you know even a whole section to stand up at once that's not a wave that's a group of people standing up that's 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 something different if you get you know five people who are all standing next to each other to stand up even in a sequence someone three people away aren't gonna gonna do it you know if you have you know 50 people throughout a section of the stadium standing up synchronously that's not a wave either and whether 50 people standing up in the right sequence are gonna cause the wave to to happen is is not guaranteed either so i mean i think you know the space is good but even in places that we understand exactly what <laughs> what the the idea and the principle and the psychology behind doing the wave is it's still not straightforward that how often and how reliably you can cause this to happen and if you're not hitting exactly right you know my best bet of you know how do you actually get the wave to happen other than having an announcer is to have you know a group of people somewhat distributed through an area standing up in the right sequence. But if you don't know that sequence and you don't know those rules and you don't know who can see who, right? You also should be sort of downhill. If they're starting in the back of the audience, it's it's not gonna work. You know, if you don't know these rules, it's gonna it's a very large space that that's you're gonna have to go through. I mean I think our best bet is just to try to mimic exactly what we see and see, you know, what, you know, if you replicate exactly what you see to the best of your ability, how much of what you expect to have, have happen actually results. If you, to the best of your ability, try to recreate people standing up, do you start a wave and what are the rules? And this is my, my idea of how like you build up the intuition of knowing what experiments to do to, to actually see how you cause a wave or actually see how you replicate neural dynamics is you start with what you can see and then you build off of it. But that segues to the limits of what we can see. Well, we actually have um, another podcast with Elizabeth Hillman and Mark Schnitzer and Jacob Robinson talking about um, the limits of what we can see. So I won't, I, we won't go into that much, uh, uh, too much today. But I, you know, maybe if I could ask, we're, we're as we kind of get to the second half of this, if we could start to prognosticate a little bit. Um, Adam, you talked about how the engineering aspects of this continue to get better. We get better lasers, faster spatial light modulators you know, Dyseroth Lab and Boyden Lab have been cranking out and um, uh, yeah, have been cranking out better, better options. Um, where do we think, where do we think some natural limits are? Where do we think we're going in the next couple of years? Uh, what is, what's the bottleneck? Is there one particular bottleneck? Um, can we start to, can you start to kind of paint us a picture about what the next five years might look like? So I think, you're definitely going to start to see more and more control over the circuits in terms of the pure numbers. How many neurons can you photostimulate over what area at what depth? So for example, recently there was a paper from Ali Pasha Vaziri recording a million neurons, right? And, you know, I already told you the limits of, you know, what we can photoactivate per second is maybe 10,000 spikes distributed across different sets of hundred neurons at a time kind of thing. And those limits will get better. I think one thing that'll open the door that's going to change things quite a bit is voltage imaging. So I mentioned our sort of Achilles heel with the way we're reading out is calcium imaging. If we use direct readout of voltage, we can get better precision of reading in order to understand what we need to write back to test theories of how much that precision matters. So 
we're going to start to see better readout. Those are going to start with clever strategies of doing small numbers of neurons at a time because voltage is, is a, a less strong signal that happens less for over a shorter period of time than calcium. So it's fundamentally harder to catch. Um, I think that's going to be one big avenue that, that we go into. And I think another Adam, Adam Cohen has been very uh, instrumental in pushing so he has a beautiful paper on all optical electrophysiology where they're actually controlling the voltage and reading the voltage more accurately, but they can only really do this in slices of tissue because it doesn't work with two photon excitation in vivo very well currently, but there are a lot of moves uh, and generation of new tools that, that are enabling that. And some of them we're working on the lab right now, actually. But I think what we need to do is not get more neurons over more time with more precision over larger areas. We need better hypotheses about which neurons to target. We need to know which knob to turn. We need to know who's the announcer in the stadium and what is it that they need to say. If they're in England, they need to say, let's do the wave. If they're in another country, they need to say something else that makes those people do the wave. So it's, you know, that's the part that we don't know. And I think this is where we need to kind of up our game in terms of our ability to on the fly drive sequences. So we can start to say, okay, it's not just, I want to hit these 10 neurons because I saw them doing something, you know, on a trial 10 seconds ago. I want to change the dynamics based on what I see right now. We need to feed that back into the system. So these get at the control sort of theories that I think, uh, you know, Matt, Matt Kaufman here is an expert in. So I'm going to segue to him in a moment and hope he can tell us what we actually need. Because going back to your question of, you know, what, what percentage do we need to take control of? I think we don't really know because we have not yet respected the dynamics of the circuit. So to me, that's where we really need to go is we need to understand what those manifolds are, what patterns are possible in the neural state space, and how can we manipulate those to test theories about, in a, in a causal way, which ones of those matter. And so it's not just a numbers game, you know, milliseconds, number of spikes over what, you know, cortical area. It's how carefully and how faithfully can you replicate or manipulate the dynamics of relevance, which we don't yet have a, a complete grasp on, grasp on. Do you think there will be an increase in the numbers though? Could we try to, how, how much, like for instance, if we kept the options the same, I imagine that at a certain point, Adam, you know, gets the Dr. Evil laser, you know, and, and, and we can pump even more energy in, but obviously there's an energy limit there. Um, you know, are, are, are we limited right now by energy? Essentially, we have the right engineering tools, but we're en we need too much energy, so we need to work on the transducer side. Or are we engineering limited? Where's, where, if, you, if you can kind of shout out to the world right now, who, who should get their ass in gear and get three times better so that we'll, we'll, our whole system will get three times better? I mean, I think based on our stuff looking at SLMs, uh, we can, and our sort of way is not as efficient as maybe some others, we can get 600 points easily without having, maybe even a thousand points without having any reduction in the contrast. So the point that you're trying to illuminate is maximally bright with no spillover in, in a point that you're not trying to, to get. So that would mean a thousand neurons per instant, per, per millisecond is totally within the ability of the SLM. The SLM might not be able to take the heat necessary. You know, in our hands, it's not entirely clear where where things break down. Um, but 
you know, the, it's not the, it doesn't seem like it's the SLM that's the, the problem. We run out of laser budget faster than we run out of anything else. Uh, but that's most easily solved by having better options that require a lower laser budget and where you can get better prevalence because, you know, when you're, you're infecting an area with opsin, you get, you know, some percentage of your cells are the ones that got lots of copies of the, the opsin. And so they're the most stimmable and some, you know, you can see there's a little bit of faint red indicating that that cell has the opsin, but it's not really stimmable in your hands. So you double or triple or 10 X the conductance of your, your opsin and you've, you've solved all of those problems. If, if the cell isn't too sick to, to work. Yeah. So then that's a, the other question is like, what, what are the tolerances, you know, how, how much better can we get on our options? So obviously there's, you know, the trade-off between speed and, and conductance, a slower option, all other things, you know, a, an option where the pore closes slower will conduct more than an option whose pore closes faster, all other things being equal. Uh, so you can slow down your options and use less laser power to, to get them to be activated. Obviously, I don't like that idea for various reasons that we've discussed, but it works. So how, how far forward, you know, make a, a bigger pour, make it more selective for, for cations, do something different? Uh, these are all not solved questions, but, you know, it's, it's sort of telling that all of the existing options are in the same ballpark of of conductance, you know, everybody who, who optimizes a, an opsin for two photon, you know, you're in the one to one to two to three nanoamps of, of current fluxed, right? That's, that's about the upper limit that anyone's shown. No one's shown a, a 10 nanoamp opsin, even in, in one photon. I think people have been close, but certainly no one's shown a hundred nanoamp, you know, it's like, uh, they're, you know, other problems when you get to super I, I guess it's hard to build a it's hard to build a channel protein that has a huge amount of conductance and can still be selective i mean you could build a, a optically optically gated gap junction um and just open a hole in the cell but if you want if you want uh, ion selectivity that's almost always essentially it's a it's a um you need to be limited sort of... by the size of the, the ions so that you coordinate them well I think just on the opsin front, while we're talking opsins, I think what we really need uh, is something that's more spectrally exact. So yeah. it responds to precisely the color you want and not another. So we can have multiplexed channels for reading and writing. And when I mean writing, I mean turning on and turning off because we'd like to be able to do both in the same you're, experiment. You're fighting a losing battle if you want to use multi-photon though, because multi-photon is by its nature, very broad absorbing. Yeah, no, it's going to be, it's going to be a challenge, but I think the more we tighten up the spectra, the better we're going to get because we can then do this better multiplexing. Cause that's what we're running into now is that the stronger and stronger red opsins, they start to respond more and more when you try to image at the same time, which is of course what we're trying to do. We're trying to read and write with light. That's all optical interrogation as, as we like to call it. So, you know, to me, there's a, there's a fundamental limit there. And I think, you know, we're also always pushing the SLM manufacturers to build us bigger SLMs with smaller, more exact pixels so we can shoot light over larger areas and things like that with, with while maintaining precision and speed at the same time. We want bigger and better lasers, but you know, so that we can do more. I think we're not really at the limits of the amount of power we can dump into the brain, usually because we want to inject 
a pattern of, an act, of activity for you know, a short period of time and then see what happens. So we're not leaving the light on all the time. The duty cycle is low. It might only be on for, you know, one tenth or one one hundredth of, you know, the time of the experiment. So you can actually afford to dump in more. So I think we're not really at those limits yet. Um, but I would, but I would argue that what we what we really need is to know which neurons to target. That's our <laughs> fundamental limit in in terms of designing a good experiment to test these various theories of you know what actually matters to brain dynamics and and generating you know motor action, right? Something like that. I now have I, concerns that Adam is reading my grant notes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I totally agree with you, Adam, that what we, we need is better neurons. Matt, why aren't you doing your job? <laughs> Here we have the, the sort of genetic engineering community making great opsins. You have Ian and Adam delivering the light and, and just seemingly sitting on your hands. Someone wants to give me money theory. for a holography system. I am all in. We've, if I we've had got... the money, I'd give it to you. Ian, Ian, you can just give him the holography system. This is actually a key point that that actually is one of the things we've tried to get money for and had trouble with is is dissemination. We just need to get these tools into everybody's hands. And unfortunately, it being cutting edge stuff, it's really expensive, right? And so, you know, we've collaborated with companies to get it into their microscopes so that they can industrially disseminate it. So everyone's not trying to build their own. But the other thing you need is you need the protocols, how to run these experiments. It becomes extraordinarily complex, which neurons to target at which millisecond and coordinate all the equipment that you need to do that, the laser, the SLM, microscope, all of this. And so, you know, we've got our code on GitHub, so you can do that. We're trying to pump it out there and get people yeah. to do it. But the other big problem is expressing this stuff. You know, people don't always talk about this, yeah. but Matt alluded to it earlier that, you know, make sure the neurons are healthy, right? You got to get these yeah things that are not endogenous to the tissue, the opsin and the indicator in there, and the cells need to be okay. So we need people to be developing the transgenics, right? So that you can just get a mouse from, you know, Jack's lab or, or whomever, the Allen Institute, you just get that mouse that comes pre-built with the stuff you need to read and write neural activity. You get the microscope from the company, you put them together and you can do your experiment. And it's not that plug and play yet. And that's actually what's keeping people who have great ideas about there about, you know, what nodes we need to control, who's the announcer and what language does he or she speak, you know, we got to get it in their hands so they can test their ideas. You know, a pattern that's come up in, in a few of these podcasts has been the modes of collaboration between scientists and engineers of different disciplines. And I think this is a great example because you have some non-trivial genetic engineering and kind of gene expression to work out. You have advanced nonlinear optics, which are also non-trivial to build in the lab. And then you have this um, control theory, which uh, is just not part of the training of, of most neuroscientists. And, you know, how, what, what, what have you found in your own collaborations? Is it best when you have people in their lanes, working in their lanes? Do you feel like everyone has to learn everything? Um, what, What's worked and what hasn't in your experience uh, to, to get a big ambitious project like this working? I can answer from my experiences. So I, I found that hand-in-hand -hand collaboration has been the most successful. And uh, the, the example that I like to use is on the, the creation of our optical delivery system. So we have a very talented, or we had a very talented postdoc, Nico Pigard, he now runs his lab at UNC. And when he he started in, in the Adesnik lab, he didn't, 
he didn't know the the head from the tail of a fish. Uh, so he and he literally made this mistake that he started imaging the tail of, tail of the fish and couldn't understand why he couldn't find neurons. But uh, but he knows his optics really really well. And so what happened is you know we're talking about holography. We're talking about how to how to make it work. Do we do the spiral scanning or or the everything at once, do we the Emiliani tricks or, or whatever? And, you know, his first reaction is, you know, what you want is impossible. What you want physically does not work. It's a, there's no solution, go home, give up. But then, you know, we're, we're talking and, you know, certain things come up like, you know, okay, how big is a neuron? Well, we don't actually care that neurons are each a different size, they're all in the same range. So his constraint of being like, oh, you need to be able to make a spot that's just the right size for each neuron isn't, isn't relevant. We can use the same spot for everything. And these sort of like problems that, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm concerned about, well, but what we do need is a different amount of light for each cell because each cell has a different requirement. And then Nico's like, oh, that's not a problem at all. We can do this and, and give different amounts of, of power to everything. So there was, you know, you know, okay, so those are somewhat trivial examples, but they're, you know, over and over and over and over the course of that collaboration, the things that he thought was impossible, I could write off or fix on my own way. And the things that I thought were impossible, he could write off or fix in his own way. And so we were able to advance something forward that neither one of us could have created by ourselves. And only really could happen not because we exchanged emails you know once a month or you know sort of what happens with some of my other collaborations but because we were sitting next to each other and we would go out to the bar after work sometimes and generally would talk all about the project in many different ways and so so i i'm a strong advocate of these hand-in-hand -hand collaborations where where you know it's it's really you know you're really there with the other person working on on the same on the same goal. I think there also has to be skin in the game, right? Um, you know, you're working with a theorist. If if they've got 15 problems they're working on and yours is a little bit stuck, right? Their attention is going to go to the other 14, um, right? You need them. You need them to care <laughs> that your project succeeds. Um, same thing as you know, if you're the an analytics person and you're collaborating with an experimentalist, right? Like. If they're not that motivated to get the data, right? If some other project is hot right now, then um, you you just you just have to have a, people's priorities aligned. Um, I think it is also important that everybody has at least at least an outline of an understanding of the other parts of the project. Um, exactly for the reason that Ian said, which is that when problems come up, you want everyone to understand them well enough that someone can someone can jump in and say, oh, I can definitely do that, right? It'll involve this compromise. Can we, can we accept that compromise? Um, but just, just having, everybody will have a, a different idea on it of, you know, what's most easily addressed experimentally or analytically or optically or um, behaviorally or genetically, whatever. Um, if, if everybody has at least the dim outline of the project, um, it gets it gets a lot easier to figure out what you should be solving and take off another collaborator's plate. And I think this is this is what makes neuroscience really hard, right? Because you have to be a little bit a jack of all trades and master of one. 
So it's a little different than the normal analogy. Jack of all trades and master of none is what often happens, right? And I think jack of all trades in neuroscience is obvious, right? You need to know anatomy, genetics, uh, you know, you need to understand electrical activity of neurons. You might need to understand, depending on what problem you're after, a little bit of like dynamics and things like that. And then depending on what techniques you're using, if you're a theoretician, you're going to need some hardcore maths. If you're a microscopist, you're going to need to understand some optics. And so you really, you have to kind of be able to speak multiple languages. And I think it's also critical that um, each person brings a certain uh, kind of extreme expertise in one area. So if you have you know, like I've worked with, with theoreticians before that have, you know, deep mathematical intuition, but maybe not as much about, um, you know, biology or anatomy, but it doesn't really matter, right? Or they don't understand what we can do with light. But again, they don't need to know that. They just need to know we can hit this many neurons with this many spikes at this time. How would you test this particular theory of how you think the brain works mathematically? That's where you kind of need to get together. And I think that's one thing that like, I always found daunting in the beginning, like how am I ever possibly gonna understand everything there is to know about how an action potential is generated and also nonlinear optics and also you know, low dimensional manifolds of you know, high dimensional activity. But you, do, that's, you choose one and you specialize and then you make sure to have these good kind of like hand in glove kind of collaborations like both Ian and Matt mentioned so that you bring those different expertise to bear on a particular problem. And, and suppose there are people sitting in their silos today watching this and just thinking, oh man, I have a piece of this, but I, I, I'm a deep expert in one area, but I'd love to, I'd love to learn, Matt, I would love to learn more about how the brain can be modeled as a dynamical system. Do you, have a, do you recommend an entry point for them so that they can get to a level where they could approach you as a collaborator? Sure. So the, there's um, there's several good dynamical systems in neuroscience kinds of reviews that have come out of the lab I did my PhD in, uh, Krishna Shinoy's lab, um, as well as um, uh, a couple of things that have come from John Cunningham and Mark Churchland and Byron Yu. Um, there's, there's sort of a, a as more and more people have become interested in this, there have been a, a series of, of nice reviews on this that are accessible entry points. Um, but you also just have to figure out what is what is your question, right? What is it? What is it you want to do with this? Um, there's a little bit of a problem of what if someone reads Kalman filter, and their head starts to explode, and they and they start going to Wikipedia to figure out what it is. What if someone's at that level that they they understand visually, you know, the the pictures in the review, but they want to learn a little bit more of the basics? Um, is there a is there a place they could go or if, if it helps, that's me too. If you ask me to drive a Kalman filter at the board, I'm in trouble. <laughs> that's really helpful to know. And I think w Wikipedia is a great place for this, actually. I mean, you'll get to the point, some like nonlinear optics topics, maybe you get really deep. You'll find, a you'll find a limit where it's no longer really helpful. But for many of the, like you go like, the, I haven't looked at it recently, but the you know Wikipedia article on two-photon excitation is probably pretty excellent by now. It's a, it's a lot better for some things than others. For anything mathematical, actually, I find Wikipedia... Um, I often start with it, but it's often pretty inaccessible. Um, you'll do actually much better um, Googling for course notes. Somebody who's covered it in a course, someone will have written good course notes on it. Um, and that can actually be a really great entry point to almost any mathematical topic. Holography, Ian. If someone's thinking, I want to up my game, I want to learn about holography, where should they start? I don't really know. Um, so definitely there's... 
the Emiliani lab runs their, their holography course every year, which I think is, is pretty solid. I haven't attended it personally, but I know some people who have, that was good. Uh, looks like Adam might be getting a book that might save me. Yeah. I, uh, I was just going to see, I have a great a book that I really like on optics by the Eugene Hecht, H E C H T. I can send you the details for the, for the notes on the podcast. And I was just going to see what he has on holography because usually he gives, um, an intuition. He gives an example like an image of like what it actually is, you know, from some experiment. And then he often goes a bit deeper into the mathematical sort of derivations and things behind it. So you can kind of go as deep as you want. And the examples are often really good. Um, so yeah, that's something that I would recommend is, is get a good textbook, which I know sounds kind of old school, especially since I also said, look at Wikipedia, but you yeah. kind of need both. So I've also learned about new fields from going to like Coursera and other like online, you know, really, you know, college level classes. You know, I, I did a, you know, when I wanted to see, so all of my optics background is, is self-learned. It's learned in various labs. I've never taken an optics class. So I really wanted to know, like, what do I not know? What, what do I not know? So I, I went and I, I, you know, spent most of my time on fast forward, but, you know, played with a Coursera co course on basic optics and, and Fourier optics and many of the other things. And it's actually surprisingly good at getting you, especially if you have some other experience, it gives you a good foundation. It fills in some of the gaps. It's like, oh, I know I need to do this for this reason, but, oh, here's the mathematical derivation of that, or here's the, the formalized way to say it, or even just here's the library of terms that you can use to say what you mean that someone else will understand you know so even if you are self-taught like like i am you just you want to say like you know oh this is in the that plane or this is in this plane or you know this is that shape of of wave propagation just having the words to communicate what you might even already know is really is is useful and that and i went to coursera to help me fill in some of the those those gaps Thanks. We're, we're getting toward the end of this. And so I wanted to, as a closer, um, suppose that the capability existed to access 1% of cells in any brain area of your choice. Um, but And you're the only person with access to this. There's a lot of responsibility on your shoulders. Um, what, would, what would you do? Um, and it could be a research application or it could be a therapeutic application. Um, what would you do if you were the only person who could do this and humanity was relying on you to, to get the best bang for its buck? I want the colostrum. So this is, <laughs> this is a part of the brain, okay? Which, um, you know, we're studying in the lab. So we're already trying to get at this, but um, it's, a, it's, it's a part of the brain that in humans is this sheet buried sort of beneath, between the, um, the internal and extremum capsules. It's underneath insular cortex. It's bilateral. It's got a funky shape. And we have no idea really what it does to make a, to make a bold and I think pretty supported claim. We don't really have a great theory of what it does because to begin with, we don't really have any humans that have like lost exactly and precisely their colostrum on both sides. I mean, there's some hints, some different infections that have maybe gotten there and, and, strange things happen, but it's different in every case and it's very rare. So we really don't know, have a good idea what it does, but we're starting to get some tractability with these modern approaches, similar to the ones we've been talking about today, whether it's, you know, electrophysiology, calcium imaging, um, 
uh, you know, whatever it is to sort of get at optogenetics to, to, re to record and manipulate from this area. Um, and I think if I had the infinite amount of money, what I would love to do is just, first of all, um, record those neurons while the animal does everything, everything from birth to death. Okay. I want to put it through an Olympics course, right? It's got to do the four F's, right? Fighting, feeding, there's a few others. <laughs> um, and I want to see what happens to those neurons when it, when that happens. And, you know, we're, tr we've made, since we don't have Manhattan project level money, we've made some hypotheses about some good things to try with our limited pot of money. But that's for, for such a, a sort of unlimited budget and potential for impact. That's a very, that's a very risky bet. I mean, it could turn out that your favorite area of the brain is just involved in sphincter control during farting. Hey, you know what? <laughs> At least now we know I die happy. If that's what it does, that's fine. You yeah, know, it's clinical it's, applications of that. <laughs> yeah. Control that. But look, it's, it's, uh, I think the other thing I didn't mention about this area, it's like, it's highly connected to many other brain areas. Maybe it's this node we've been talking about. Maybe it's the announcer that controls the state of, you don't know until you check, right? It could be this keystone structure. Uh, and I think that's, uh, for me, that's enough. Even if it turns out to be some vestigial thalamus that's no longer needed, uh, you know, which maybe that's true, right? But evolutionarily, it's pretty deep. It's pretty conserved from <laughs> reptiles to humans. It's got to be doing something and I'm just dying to know. It was involved in controlling the appendix, <laughs> the neural function of the appendix. That's what keeps me up at night. It could be vestigial, okay. but hey, you know what? At least we'll know. Matt, what about you? All right. So um, I'm, I'm a little fuzzy on exactly what the limits of technology are for, for purposes of this thought experiment. So I'm just going to pick some for myself. Um, so first thing I want to do is I want to, I want to push this notion of dynamics until it breaks. So, um, I want to, I want to simultaneously write in an image, um, in a bunch of different areas. Don't, don't have to do them at the same time, right? This, this can be one at a time. Um, I want to really, I want to really write in patterns that are consistent with activity we see that are inconsistent with activity that we see. I want to understand whether low dimensional dynamics are something that we see because we're just not sampling enough behavior or whether this is really something that is wired into the circuit. Um, I want to play with um, sparse versus dense stimulation and try to understand what the feedback mechanisms are that control how active cortex is and um, whether these dynamical patterns are, are limited to be sparse. I want to mess with that juxtaposition of theories that I mentioned earlier, this, this idea of assemblies versus sequences versus dynamics. Um, I want to test them all out and see what fits. Um, I want to try uh, pushing activity in ways that hopefully will trigger execution of whatever the animal currently is, um, or currently is, is thinking of doing or preparing to do. Um, I want to tag projection neurons and figure out how we get patterns into those projections that other areas can use. Uh, I want to do simultaneous uh, recording and activation in different areas, um, uh, push on these output potent, output null dimensions that that I had looked at previously and that uh, other groups have followed up on and see how areas coordinate their activity. Um, I've got a lot to do in Cortex. <laughs> you want to do all of neuroscience. You just take yeah. all the money being fed into it worldwide, give it, it to you and we'll be done. Uh, I don't know. Great. I don't know about done, but I'll be happy and busy. Um, right? There's, <laughs> there's sure. just, there's so many questions you can, you can ask and hopefully answer if you've, if you've got the ability to, to really write in what you want to write in, and to read it out and to monitor the animal's behavior. Um, right? Like, 
does yeah. uh, does the dimensionality of these man of the neural manifold does the the structure of the neural manifold do these things change when you train an animal to do one thing or another? Um, there's there's really just no end of questions and looking at differences between sensor and motor and association areas. Um, there's there's just there's no end for me. Me too. I agree. All the same things. <laughs> <laughs> what about, you know, what if, what if you could have all of this capability with, you know, a tiny grain of sand and, it, and you could do it in humans and there were no regulatory restrictions, would you, would you still carry on with your existing research programs or would you think, no, there's something, there's something moving toward a therapy that, that I would want, you know, that I would want this for? Locked in syndrome. That's what I would go after. That strikes me as the most horrible thing that you could possibly imagine happening to. I mean, there's all sorts of horrible things. This strikes me as one of the most horrible things. If you could understand how to unlock that, right? If you could, you say you can take control of 1% of neurons. I would take some of those patients and I would try every 1%, see if I can unlock them. I mean, you know, think about it. That's just, yeah, that's what I would go after. Of all the debilitating things I can imagine, that's one of the worst. Yeah, I mean, definitely writing in sensory perceptions to see if you can get a response, you know, a meaningful response out from a locked-in patient would be, would be very cool. It's maybe not the well, biggest. I guess you could you could also go for the biggest, right? You could go for, you know, there's not all that many locked-in patients. So if you think of numbers of patients you could help, might be another good way of going about it. But so if we can yeah. get one percent of of neurons and there's less than one percent of people who have locked-in syndrome, we can control all of their neurons, right? That's the, the <laughs> there we go. I mean, I, for therapeutics, I mean, I'd still, I still don't think we know enough of what to do to really create good therapeutics. So, I mean, the, you know, the, the one thing that I would add on to all of the, the great ideas that, that Matt just had is that there's a, there's a huge world in like how nuclei talk to each other. And so one that I, I'm interested in is understanding how the cortex in general talks to the basal ganglia and, and subcortical structures. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of stuff to be done understanding how neural codes talk to other parts of the brain. You know, so I did my PhD in a basal ganglia lab. What we would study the striatum a lot. The striatum is critically involved in a huge number of diseases. You know, you've got everything from schizophrenia to Parkinson's disease and, and many in between. And there's one of the big limitations on understanding what the striatum, what the basal ganglia is even doing, is that we don't have good control over what's talking to it. We have neither control over what's going into it nor control over what comes out of it. So you need approaches that allow you to, to take direct control and take control at the level in which it's written, right? We need to control activity at its natural endogenous scales to and manipulate it to be able to say, okay, this is this is what's important. This is how you know. This is the receptive field of a subcortical structure. This is what this cell actually cares about. And these are actually tractable problems. We don't need a Manhattan Project level uh, thing. You know, we need a lot of concerted effort, many different techniques, theory, uh, experimentalists, uh, optics people, optogenetics people, whatever. We need many people working together. But we're not it's not out of the range of what's what's doable to say, okay, we wanna understand this nucleus. We wanna control all of the inputs at cellular resolution and millisecond precision to this, this nucleus to say, okay, this cell cares about that. We can write the, the transfer function between 
cortex and striatum. We can do that now with technologies that exist now. We just need to do it. So that would be step one yeah. and then multiplex out to every nucleus to every nucleus from, from there. But. If we're going after humans, we can go after what we might, what might be circuitopathies. So, you know, yeah. some pathology of the circuit. So if you think that schizophrenia or autism has something to do with these dynamics we've been talking about, it's not just that there's something wrong with one particular receptor, or one particular neuron type, but it, but that that leads to a fundamental dynamics level problem that the unfolding of activity across different neurons across time does not happen in the the optimum optimal sort of way if we can do this all these technologies in humans that would be i think a really exciting one to go after because you could directly test these ideas um by by trying to see how these dynamics unfold in patients that either have that particular disease or not all right let me let me float a few things on if if we could do humans so um one of them is something being done by a, a collaborator of mine, a couple of collaborators of mine, Simon Benzmea and Nico Hatsopoulos, um, where for brain-computer interfaces, it turns out that um, sensory feedback is, is critical normally to your motor control, and it turns out that there's only so well you can do if you, if you can't implement that in a brain-computer interface for a paralyzed person. So um, I'm sure they would love to take this ability to write in and go ahead and use that for sophisticated sensory feedback. Um, that's that's not my focus, um, but um, in, in terms of clinical applications, I think that's probably one of the better ones. Um, I think that there is a real limitation of um, of our basic research knowledge. Um, just to give you an idea, if you have 10,000 neurons, right? So a human brain has something like 100 billion neurons. If you have just 10,000 neurons um, and you think of each one as being either on or off, which is not the true thing, right? Neurons can be more active or less active, um, but just on or off, the number of possible states is two to the 10,000, which is about the same number as 10 to the 1,000, which is to say it's one followed by a thousand zeros, right? That's, that's the original definition of a Google. Um, it's a lot. Um, it's very hard to explore that space. You really do need to have theory that drives you to say, you know, let's try this specific thing because you just can't try out the combinations. It's just too many. Um, so um, I think I think a great deal of basic research in in much the way I suggested doing it in a mouse, right? Just do it in a human where it has it has greater relevance to us and where you can ask humans to do much 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 more sophisticated tasks. Um, the other thing I want to float if you had humans is, man, would I love to work on language, um, right? There, there are systems that people work on, right? There's this Costa Rican singing rodent that Mike Long works on. There's, um, there's Songbird, of course, which um, there are at least a dozen really spectacular researchers in that world. Um, but I would, I mean, human language, it just, it marries... First of all, the perhaps the finest motor control in the animal kingdom, right? It turns out just controlling your vocal apparatus is phenomenally difficult, um, but it marries that with cognition and motor sequencing and um, things we think of as being fundamental to what make us human. And if you could really get in there and both read and write in a human um, language, I think would be a, a phenomenal problem to work on both on the, on the production side and on the semantic side, right? Like if you can, if you can write in the understanding of an idea, right? Ask someone, ask someone to think about something, um, you know, look at the, if you like the engram for how their, how their brain is encoding that, write that back in and 
uh, what you've observed in different areas and see which one they're like, oh yeah, now I am thinking of a beached whale. I agree. I would use that language as the report because this is often what we have trouble with understanding in our mice, right? So we tickle some neurons in the brain and we try to ask the mouse, what did you feel? And the mouse either licks at a spout or doesn't. That's all we get, right? And sure, you could put two spouts and you can put a wheel. You can get all sorts of slightly more elaborate feedback, but you can't ask them what it felt like, right? Um, and I think that would be just a beautiful thing to have in a human. By the way, Mike Long is the first person I ever saw record from a neuron, from a live neuron, record action potentials from a live neuron. And you should get him to do a podcast if you can. He's great. He's a fantastic researcher. Yeah. Get, get Eddie Chang while you're at it, right? Who actually does some language stuff in humans. Obviously not, not with uh, full access calcium imaging and optical stimulation, but... What about Tim Gardner? Is he at, is he at Neuralink now or Michael Fee would, would maybe be good as well. Yeah. Tim Gardner is at BU, but I think he maybe yeah. Well, Matt, Ian, Adam, thank you so much for your time. Yeah. This was fun. My pleasure. Thank you for having us. This was great. Enjoyed it. Awesome.